0: Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan, From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here.
1: Welcome to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, the National Day of Mourning for Workers, a Ukrainian city twins with Brantford and the Stand With Us Billboard campaign. But we begin with the small business comeback. And in fact, small businesses are still struggling as we begin to move away from the pandemic. Even with the lifting of almost all restrictions, the small business owner is facing challenges regaining financial footing after a dreadful two years of lockdowns and capacity restrictions. A labor shortage in some sectors, employee absenteeism due to the highly transmissible variants, and customer hesitation when it comes to shopping and dining indoors. Dan Kelly is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, and he joins us now on the feed. So great to have you on the show. Thank you, Dan.
2: Good to be with you.
1: Debt help. That's what small businesses are looking for from the federal government. Why are they still struggling so?
2: Well, look, lots has changed, and and some for the better. Most of the COVID restrictions, the major ones, lockdowns, uh, capacity rules, vaccine passports, they are in the rearview mirror. And despite the uptick in cases, they haven't seen a return at this stage. So that's, that's really helpful. And so many businesses are starting the slow, slow road to recovery. The challenge is, is that customers are not coming back in huge numbers. Um, right now, only about 42% of businesses are telling us that they are back to regular levels of sales. And as a result, they're, they're struggling with that. Um, and over the course of the past two years, the average small firm has taken out on $160,000 in new debt wow. just to survive.
1: Wow.
2: And it's that they're going to have to start repaying these loans. They're going to have to make disproportionately large incomes to be able to to, to manage the, the debt that they're carrying. And and yet that's not happening. So we're really worried about the pinch that small businesses are, other, uh, are under. Uh, adding to that, of course, a whole bunch of new costs. So it's not a good time mm-hmm. for businesses, despite uh, the fact that there is some positive momentum back in the economy.
1: And there are supply shortages. We have record-breaking inflation numbers at this point. I mean, we haven't seen numbers like this since 1991. That's got to be very difficult. And if you are a small business and you're carrying a huge debt load like that and you're not seeing your customers coming back, it's got to be really tough. Where can a small business turn in order to get some help?
2: Well look you're you're absolutely right the costs have been going through the roof we as consumers of course have noted the the pressures of of inflation on our household budgets uh, but for a business owner virtually every line in their budget is is under pressure right now the costs of absolutely everything are rising and rising fast including some pieces that are controlled by governments like canada pension plan premiums ei premiums mm. are going to be going up this year we just had a carbon tax increase so the first place to stop when you're running into a problem is to stop digging. Unfortunately, governments haven't gone down that road. They haven't provided the necessary relief to business owners, and we're pushing them to do just that. Small firms are trying to renegotiate as much as they can to try to keep costs low, um, but, but I do worry that many are going to make the decision as, as the economy continues to reopen Businesses are going to say, geez, I'm not seeing customers return back to previous levels. My costs are going through the roof. The prospect of a profit is now much more limited. Where do I turn in the keys to my business? And and that's, yeah. that's very much on the minds of thousands and thousands of entrepreneurs right now uh, who are really worried about whether they're going to be able to make it even now with the restriction lifting.
1: And we also need to add to their woes, and and it's great for employees, but maybe not for employers, that the minimum wage has gone up and it's going up again in the fall. That's got to be very tough on on business owners. They want to treat their employees well. They want to stick to the rules. But man, that's got to that's eat away at whatever profit there might be there.
2: It's absolutely right. And look, where the cost pressures are the greatest are also on the sectors that that were hit the hardest by pandemic restrictions. I mean the sectors that that really felt the most, retail, hospitality, the service sector, arts and entertainment, these are the businesses that that didn't have haven't had a normal month of sales in in the past two years, really. And now they're seeing cost increases, many of them imposed by governments. you're quite right, minimum wage adds to that pressure. Businesses are having to dig in deeper to try to pay employees better simply because there's a gripping shortage of labor that they're facing. But when we add fuel to that through, through disproportionately large increases in the minimum wage, that just makes a bad problem worse. We need a break from some yes. of these cost pressures right now to allow small businesses a bit of time to get their feet under them again. And, and governments are not making it easier. They're making it more difficult.
1: And then there's the health aspect of this. You know, if you walk down any street in York Region or in, in anywhere in the GTA, there are often signs on store windows saying, had to close early, no staff. And there's a lot of absenteeism because of the highly transmissible Omicron and BA2. That also has to be difficult. I mean, the, obviously, the business owner isn't having to pay the employee, but they, they, they may not be able to stay open as they might normally because they don't have staff.
2: Absolutely right. Look, there there's spontaneous closures happening, as you just noted, all over the place. Um, you know, if you have five employees and two of them are are two positions are vacant, or two are struck with the variant and are now out because they're they're sick, you could that's forty percent of your staff that are gone. The business owner, him or herself and family members, are trying to make things work and and pitch in wherever they possibly can. But gosh, it is really, really hard. One of the one of the positive things, to be fair, that the the, the budget did bring, federal budget, is some major changes to, to the temporary foreign worker program. This is a program that allows Canadian employers to bring in people from overseas uh, for jobs uh, for a period of time. And as the economy gets back uh, back on its legs, uh, this is a really helpful measure. And we're, we compliment the federal government for moving in that direction.
1: Can we talk about customer hesitation? And it's rampant. It's it's everywhere. And that's because people read headlines or watch the news uh, on television or hear it on the radio that there are hundreds of thousands of cases of COVID, at least in Ontario. Uh, and we don't really have the kind of PCR testing that should be there to give us a clear picture. But there are people who are still quite reluctant to go inside to do anything, whether it's to shop or to dine and we don't have any restrictions that will they might feel would protect them.
2: Yeah, this is a really challenging period right now. I mean, we're we're pleased that the restrictions are behind us because they were causing customers to obviously be prevented from returning to businesses. But now Ah, uh, customers are staying home in many in many cases just because they're scared, and understandably so. There still is, as you know, a disease floating around. Mm. Um, it's co- it's causing pressure from an employee perspective, given that it's you know people are sick and then they're not able to come to work. But it's also spooking customers, and businesses are desperate to get their customers back to be able to serve them again, so that they can get back to normal levels of sales, and then hopefully see their business recover. But, but you know, gosh, I, I sure hope this current wave uh, is, is short-term so that we can get customers slowly, coax them back to getting to, you know, going back to dining and to the theater and to travel. Once again, that needs to happen.
1: As the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, what one line do you say to the federal government? What do you say to the Ontario provincial government? What do you say to small business owners? What do you say to the customers?
2: So to governments, we're saying, please don't make it worse. (laughs) Make sure that you are focused on reducing costs. Deliver on the promises that you've made to help small businesses lower costs. The federal government promised that they would lower credit card processing fees for small business. That didn't happen. They're now doing another round of consultation. This has been now four years since the liberals uh, proposed this measure. We're going on to year four. Um, the, uh, we just heard uh, this week the Ontario government announced that they're going to be increasing workers' compensation benefits. That might sound good to workers, but that's 100% paid by the employer. So those costs are going to be floating down to small businesses in the future, causing many to worry. To customers, I say, look, we, you know, we need, we know that you need to manage your own risk. Nobody's going to tell you when it's. You, it, it's up to you to determine when you feel safe to go back. But if you want these businesses in your local communities, if you want to live in a in a neighborhood with cool shops and restaurants, you got to find a way to support them through the next number of months. And to business owners, gosh, you've you stood strong for two straight years. We need you. We need you to continue to do what you do best, um, and that is to 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 create jobs and to grow the economy. Uh, and I just say a huge thank you to the small business owners for their perseverance in the face of incredible, incredible odds.
1: Very well put. Dan Kelly, President and CEO of CFIB, thank you so much for your words of wisdom and your compassion when it comes to the plight of small businesses and their owners, their employees. Very much appreciated. Thanks so much, Dan. After the break, Oak Valley Health goes high tech.
0: Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. The city of Brantford is extending a hand of friendship to its twin city in Ukraine. Craig Robertson with that story.
3: In recent weeks, the city of Brantford has made some news. They have become a twin city with Kemyonets Podilsky, a Ukrainian city in the western part of the country. In just a moment, Brantford Mayor Kevin Davis will join us to talk about the impacts this will have on the city of Brantford. But first, MP Larry Brock, his office was instrumental in making this happen. We thank you so much for joining us, MP Brock. It's a pleasure to have you on 105.9 The Region.
4: Thank you so much, Craig. It's a real pleasure to join you today to talk about this wonderful initiative. Talk about how
3: your office created this idea and implemented the plans to make this all happen.
4: Sure. I wish I could take full credit for this, Craig, but uh, I will give credit where credit is due. So out of the blue, a local constituent reached out to me just to get to know me a little bit better. And we started talking about Uh, some of my my ideas as to what I wanted to do in my new role as Member of Parliament, and then he came up with an idea that I thought would probably gain a lot of traction, and that was his idea to reach out to a particular city in the Ukraine to see whether or not they would uh, be interested in sistering with Brantford, Ontario to look at mutual economic benefits. And I said, you know what, I had a real smile on my face when he brought it to my attention, and I said, uh, his name is Andy. And I said, Andy, I said, your timing is absolutely impeccable, because just the day prior, I had a similar conversation with my Ukrainian staffer in Ottawa, and his name is Walter. And Walter had suggested to me that this might be an opportunity for us to put Brantford on the world map. So that got me thinking. And Andy, of course, uh, really put this into overdrive. And from that, I reached out to my staffer and I said, do what you need to do. And let's make this happen sooner than later. Now, my staffer is also part of the Ukrainian Congress here in Canada. So he has been a wealth of information, uh, to the conservative party of Canada in terms of his ability to reach, uh, diplomats and politicians in the Ukraine and, and to really to, 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 to be a resource, uh, uh, to, to that particular entity. So he, uh, he took, he ran with this and literally within a week or so he had contacted a particular mayor of the twin city and, uh, He was quite interested in that, and the two of them put together a working plan that was presented uh, not only to their city council in in Ukraine, but also here in Brantford. And uh, Bob's your uncle; it uh, it it just came together so quickly. But you had to have the right resources and the right people to make it happen as quickly as possible. So they are uh, they're open to the mutual economic benefits once. The, uh, the war <clears throat> hopefully ends sooner than later, then we can take full advantage of our, our, our union t- together to make it uh, viable for citizens in uh, both, uh, both cities and countries. You mentioned some economic benefits. What would those be
3: for Ukraine and for Canada?
4: Well, um, they are... They're a manufacturing entity, much like uh, Brantford. There's opportunities for exporting uh, with respect to some of their larger corporations in, in, in that particular city and some of our larger corporations that do have a world presence. So, I can see that being of a mutual benefit, maybe some shared labor. They're, they're suffering with the same sort of issues that we are because of the COVID uh, issue with labor shortages, et cetera. So, I think there is an opportunity for uh, both leaders, both civic leaders, as well as their state and perhaps federal leaders responsible for that city to really work together to ensure prosperity, not only to the country itself, but obviously to the city.
3: In a part of the world where there's a lot of darkness, you've done something MP Brock that um, is bringing some light to the, to the whole situation must be uh, rewarding to, to know that what you've done, even though it's, it's small has, uh, has some, some positive impacts.
4: It, It does because, um, as far as I am aware, of all 338 members of parliament in this country, I was the first member to utilize um, the services that I, that I do have available to me to twin my jurisdiction with a city in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, a number of my colleagues from not necessarily the conservative ranks, but also the other parties. Uh, Federally have also reached out to my office to look at uh, opportunities for their jurisdictions to reach out. So in addition to the economic opportunities, Craig, I think there's opportunities for humanitarian aid. There's opportunities for migration. I know that Brantford already has taken some real proactive steps with some of our social agencies and some of our church groups and some of our ethnic organizations to really start putting together a plan to welcome what we believe to be a heavy, heavy influx of refugees coming from Ukraine. So we're ready. We're ready and we're more than willing to welcome them, welcome them to, our, to our city. MP
3: Larry Brock, whose office was instrumental in teaming up Kamenets, Podolsky, and Brantford as twin cities. Thank you very much, MP. We appreciate your time.
4: Thank you so much, Craig. It was a real opportunity. Really enjoyed it. And now from MP Larry Brock
3: to the mayor of the city of Brantford, talking about the impacts this will have on Brantford, it's Mr. Kevin Davis. Thanks a lot for joining us, Mr. Mayor. Uh, Very happy to join you. Uh, I'm assuming this got unanimous support From council?
5: Oh, right across the board, unanimous, enthusiastic support. And I would say the same of of our community.
3: And what have you heard from the residents of of Brantford? What's the feedback been with, uh, with this story?
5: Well, there has been a lot of feedback, a lot of interest, people asking a simple question, which is how can I help? I've even had some business people tell me that they would like to sponsor a family for a year and pay their rent. Some have talked about hosting families in their own home because, of course, we've got a housing shortage here as most cities do across Ontario. But it's just to sum it up, it's how can I help? What can I do?
3: I understand you've been speaking with some officials in Ukraine about this, uh, this twinning. Uh, what has their reaction been? Yeah, I'm hoping to speak to the mayor later this week. He's extremely busy. Uh, but, I, but I have
5: spoken to uh, the international relations officer. And so this is a city that's in the southwest of Ukraine. And it, it hasn't been impacted by the fighting, at least not yet. But it's been hugely impacted by uh, Ukrainian residents who are moving east to these cities that are in the western part of the Ukraine. This is a city of 100,000, very similar to the size of Brantford. And they have. Last time I talked to them, they had twenty-five thousand evacuees in their city. That's a quarter of their population. And so, a lot of they describe some of the conditions that they're uh, hosting. Families are hosting them. That the these evacuees are staying in dormitories. There's a couple of colleges in that community, uh, the high schools, wherever
3: they can find a space. People are occupying it. And where does your mind turn to when you uh, when you hear all these? horrific stories. Well,
5: you know, we see the visible images of what's been happening in the eastern Ukraine with cities just devastated and all the horrible stories we're hearing. And but we don't really hear about these cities in the other half of Ukraine, you know, the impact on them, a city that overnight its population has doubled by 25,000, a quarter of its population, you know, and the challenges that poses for those residents in those cities. And, and always, of course, they remain fearful whether the fighting will will eventually come to their part of the Ukraine. And so you know, I can only imagine the, the stress that they live under, which is probably nothing compared to the stress of cities further east, but it would seem that no matter where you are in the Ukraine,
3: this war is having a major impact everywhere throughout the Ukraine. The mayor of Brantford, Kevin Davis, is our special guest here on 105.9 The Region. This this twinning is really like a symbolic olive branch Uh, For Brantford and for the ones in Ukraine? Well, that's in fact what they told me. They told me in the short term
5: that the major benefit for their city, their community, is that because we're the first city in North America that's twinned with them, that just that sense of there's a city, there's a city our size in Canada, North America that supports us and will try and help us. And they said that would be a real morale booster for them. And what in turn do you think this will do for the city of Brantford? It brings us together in a common purpose. And and I can't underestimate the importance of that. Having gone through COVID, where for the first six to 10 months, we were a united community and dealing with adversity. And then we all know what happened towards the last year or so, where every community across the world has become divided by the pandemic. And so it's really, it's it's great to be able to have another challenge that will unify us with a common purpose. Uh, and that's probably the major impact. Plus, also a way in which we feel as a city and as residents, we can
3: help. It's a wonderful story. The city of Brantford has teamed up with Keminets Podelsky, a city in Ukraine. They've become twin cities. MP Larry Brock joined us a little bit earlier, instrumental in uh, bringing this forth. And the mayor of Brantford, Kevin Davis, with us now. Thank you very much, Mr. Mayor, for joining us. Yeah, thanks very much for having
5: me. And I uh, hope other cities. Will consider doing something like this. For the feed,
3: I'm Craig Robertson.
1: Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua and the stories behind the headlines when it comes to Vaughan's most significant achievements. Let's begin with Niagara University, the city of Vaughan's first haven of higher learning. Vaughan Mayor Maurizio Bevilacqua joins us now on the feed with how and why Niagara University came to be. Hi, Mayor Bevilacqua. Welcome to our monthly chat here on the feed. Now, you've had a busy week last Wednesday, just a couple of days ago. Big announcement when it comes to the city of Vaughan and the province of Ontario.
2: Yeah, it's a big announcement of Mackenzie Health uh, Vaughn long-term uh, uh, care facility. Uh, we're adding uh, 256 uh, new long-term uh, care beds and building a new long-term uh, care home uh, for the Mackenzie Health Vaughn uh, long-term care facility. This is part of the government's $6.4 billion commitment to build more than 30,000 new beds. And uh, we've received over 500 here in, in the city of Vaughn, and, and we're very happy because, uh, as you know, our population is aging. And the need for health care is great. Why Vaughn? I think that uh, the Minister Calandra has listened to uh, my message, uh, the CEO of, uh, of McKenzie Health, uh, Altaus Station, while message. And uh, I really want to express my gratitude for, for understanding and acting on this very important issue uh, facing uh, our community. Uh, as you know, uh, we have a Vaughn uh, healthcare. care uh, center precinct. Over 88 acres of land are dedicated to health care, and this is going to be one of the anchors uh, to uh, to that uh, parcel uh, of land uh, that will uh, become, uh, uh, I know, a world-class center for health care.
1: And that is my next question. There's been a lot of controversy surrounding long-term care, and particularly through the pandemic. How can you be sure that this is going to be gold standard when it comes to long-term care?
2: Yeah, I think that every statement that the province has made uh, shows that they're very serious about addressing the issue of long-term care. Uh, we obviously uh, provided the land uh, for this um, for this uh, building and this facility, and uh, we want to do it in a way that uh, obviously accountability transparency is uh, very much part uh, of of uh, uh, the agreement that that we have with them. but i uh, from everything that I've seen uh, to date, uh, I can tell you that uh, it's uh, top of mind. Uh, for the Minister of Long-Term Care, as well as Premier of the Province of Ontario.
1: I want to take us back in time to the inception of uh, the idea, the, the, the concept of Niagara University. You had a big hand in that. So take us back to the origins of Niagara University, Vaughn's first higher learning haven.
2: Very much like the Cortellucci Vaughan Hospital, North Maple Regional Park, the subway, uh, education is extremely, extremely important infrastructure in any, in any community, in any society. I think education is a great social equalizer. Access to education is extremely important if you want to build uh, a uh, healthy and prosperous, uh, Uh, community where everybody's given a chance uh, to maximize their human resources uh, potential. Uh, I felt that education uh, was an anchor. You know, there was no, believe it or not, the Niagara university is the first uh, university in New York region uh, ever built. And uh, so I, I was one of my, one of my mission statements to myself as mayor over the past uh, uh, 12 years was to bring uh, post-secondary education, um, university here in, in the city of Vaughan, and we were successful in doing it with Niagara University, and on January 21st, uh, 2018 was a historic day for the city of Vaughan as we opened the doors to Niagara University Vaughan campus, the Vaughan Metropolitan Center, marking really, as I stated earlier, the first, uh, the first university in our city uh, and uh, in uh, in our region, and I must say that, you know, before you open, there's a lot of work and there were a lot of trips to the Niagara uh, uh to Niagara University in uh, Lewinston, New York, because, as you know, uh, Niagara University was founded in 1856. It's a great university, great tradition. It's been outstanding in teacher training, education, and opportunities uh, for, for Canadian students since 1984. Uh, I wasn't really getting much luck in getting a university from the province of Ontario, so I went uh, essentially abroad to the United States and looked for opportunities there. And I came back really um, with a big win, and the win was Niagara University.
1: Well, wow, that's tenacity. So let's talk about the reputation that Niagara University here in Vaughan has with the community, with the city of Vaughan, with York Region, but beyond our borders. How do people view it? What is it scholastically representing?
2: Well, it's, it's an incredible university as it a, as a relates to teacher training and education. As a matter of fact, very few people know this, but there are 6,000 uh, teachers who have graduated from um, uh, Niagara University that actually teach in the Ontario uh, education system, which is uh, quite, quite a large uh, number from one single university. Uh, They're they also a very uh, progressive university. As a matter of fact, on uh, February 12th, uh, 2020, uh, Niagara University introduced three new programs at the Bond Metropolitan Center in areas that are extremely important. Master of Business Administration, Master of Science in Finance. And the third one, given, uh, as you know, and what's going on in today's world, uh, Master of Science in Information Security and Digital mm. Forensics. So these are, this is a university that is forward-looking. Uh, my conversations with students who are, best, I guess, the best litmus test of whether a university is successful uh, it has been extremely, extremely uh, positive. Uh, they like the university. And, you know, one of the great... Uh, one of the great joys of being mayor is, you know, when I when I welcome the students uh, to uh, to uh, the, the campus here in Bond, uh, many of the students were from Bond, and they really appreciated the fact that now they have a university uh, right here at home uh, that they can go to, and it's no longer a long drive to. Uh, to Lewiston, New York, uh, or in some cases, downtown Toronto.
1: You know, it's interesting. You mentioned having to sort of move with the times, and and Niagara University here in Vaughan is doing just that. So now we are beginning to emerge from the pandemic. I mean, obviously, COVID is still with us, and we have to be extremely careful. But will there be any changes in attitude or changes in courses as we move forward, knowing what we've got in the rearview mirror, which was a two-year-plus long pandemic?
2: Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, you raise a very interesting point here. I, I do think that the pandemic needs to be viewed from many filters. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, uh, how did it affect human beings and the human condition? And so you look at education, you look at, uh, for example, the impact on the economy and the obvious impact on healthcare. And if you look at the way we positioned it, uh, first of all, you know, look at healthcare. And you have the Cortulicivan Hospital, which was opened earlier to address healthcare capacities in the province of Ontario. Uh, you have the education uh, issue related to, uh, to you know, giving access to education. and that's been addressed uh, with uh, Niagara University, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop there. As you probably know, I'm working really hard to get a medical school here and a nursing school and public health school here in in, in our healthcare precinct. Uh, and I do that because I do believe, as I stated earlier, that health that healthcare education these are two pillars of of any enlightened society. And you need to have those, and you have to get that right. And you've got to provide accessibility uh, to both. And and so. Um, COVID, of course, you know, it changed the way we, we we you know, we engaged. I mean, you know, the, the virtual took over uh, the in-person, and that obviously affected also the, uh, the university. But, you know, people are graduating and, uh, you know, be going to their uh, commencement uh, in the coming months, mm. and uh, they, you know, they, they still, you know, the resiliency of people was tested during COVID, and I think that, you know, the citizens of Vaughan and the students at Niagara University did ex- exceptionally well.
1: I know you, and as we have worked together now for, for years, it seems, uh, you are really interested in students, student behavior, student interests, In you're interested in education, you're interested in furthering your own education. I know that about you, and you've done it. If you were to go back to university, let's say Niagara University, what would you like to take in terms of courses?
2: Well, I think that uh, they offer uh many programs there's also one on education leadership they have offer a phd in education leadership which is uh, an emerging uh, an emerging field uh but listen i mean knowledge uh, i'm very curious about all sorts of things so when i reach you about the security and digital forensics uh, and i just finished actually at cornell university uh a um a certificate program on diversity and inclusion, and the reason why I did that is because diversity and inclusion is uh, a very important area uh, that uh, is uh, is prominent in today's society and the dialogue in today's society about how we build a fair, more just uh, society. And so I took that course. I just finished it actually. And uh, and, you know, but I, I think you have to be committed to it. You know, and and, and we talked about this before, you know. I did my ICDD, the Institute of Corporate Directors Program at Rotman, that I went to and I did my Master of Theology at uh, Jesuit University in New York, uh, uh, Fordham University, and then I did my Master of Laws at the uh, University of Toronto in 2019. Uh, so for three and a half years, I really dedicated myself to, to get more education. Uh, and I do that because it basically is something that... I believe, uh, and fundamentally, you have to broaden your horizon. You always have to learn. And, uh, you know, as going in there, you know, as, as mayor and a former member of parliament, and you sit there with uh, people that are much younger than you, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, what you learn is that experience gives you incredible perspective. And uh, I'm in a phase of my life where I want to share my knowledge with people that are younger because I think that that's what really... What we leave behind is uh, lessons learned shared with others can perhaps uh, avoid issues in the future for them.
1: And education is the key that will unlock so many doors for so many people. From concept to reality, thank you, Mayor Maurizio Bavalacqua, for bringing Niagara University to Vaughan. And thanks for this chat. I look forward to speaking with you next month.
2: Thank you so much, Anne. Always a pleasure.
1: Jim Lang is next with the new technology unit at Oak Valley Health. Well, as you can
6: imagine, technology is changing at a light speed every year and every year there is new and approved technology in our local hospitals to make diagnosis more accurate and quicker and making healthcare better for all of us. To so talk more about some exciting state of the art changes taking place at Markham Stobel Hospital, thrilled to be speaking to one of their geniuses at the hospital and one of the heads of their diagnostics, Dr. Mutish Mehta. Dr. Mehta, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. How are you, Jim? Good. As the chief of diagnostic imaging, you must be thrilled. At Markham Stobel Hospital, Oak Valley Health, a newly constructed interventional radiology suite. How much of a game changer is this for you and your staff and your team when it comes to using radiology and diagnostic imaging to treat patients?
7: Well, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's like putting, uh, Wayne Gretzky on the ice. I mean, it's a big game changer for us. We, uh, our community has grown. Um, it's, it's the fastest growing, one of the fastest growing regions in Ontario. Uh, we, we've lacked having a proper IR suite to service our population, to provide them with the care that they really should receive uh, until now. Until now, we've been, um, providing the services, but the suite hasn't been, um, uh, It's been about 10 years old, so it's quite old. The new suite allows us to do all sorts of things much quicker with uh, a bit of AI uh, included in the suite. We can perform embolizations, stent insertions, aneurysm repairs. Well, we don't really do that at our hospital, but that sort of thing is is possible. But we also have within the suite a CT uh, and ultrasound to be able to do things intricately in a small space without real complications. Uh, it's a real game changer for us, and it's it's a wonderful thing for our community.
6: And I'm thinking about just the population of York Region and the population that you serve with Markham Stobel Hospital and Oak Valley Health, and, and, and you were quoted that you can see maybe upwards of 800 more patients a year now because of this new technology.
7: Yes. It's actually uh, allowed us to almost double. Um, we've we've gone from 1,200 to about 2,000 patients because of this new technology. So we can do things much quicker. For example, when we're doing an embolization, and we do those regularly, but an embolization is to stop bleeding or to stop a blood vessel from supplying an area. For example, a fibroid. Uh, instead of having surgery, we can cut off the blood supply and, and the patient can not take six weeks off work. And um, can recover home the same day. Um, with this technology, we can actually thread catheters through tiny microscopic blood vessels into these areas and stop blood supply. It's just a, a wonderful development.
6: Speaking with Dr. Matish Mehta, the Chief of Diagnostic Imaging at Markham-Stobel Hospital in Oak Valley Health, about this new state-of-the-art interventional radiology suite that's going to be part of Markham-Stobel Hospital, and now it's serving patients. And I, and I think about some of, of your depth of knowledge and your experience and how you approach your work, Dr. Mehta. And now this new technology, you must be thinking while you're driving around going, oh, I could try this. Oh, here's something I could do. It's almost like a new toy for you and your staff.
7: Yeah, you know, it's wonderful. In fact, speaking of driving, I've been very reluctant to, to adopt, some, adopt some of the new technology with driving, you know, the <laughs> um, self-driving cars. And, but when I'm driving and thinking about the things we can do now, I'm wondering, And this is truly, I'm truly wondering why don't try some of these newer cars. I mean, the technology is just so wonderful. You know, with this new machine, we can uh, overlay um, 2D and 3D tools with color to to let us look at what something should look like when we're finished. So if we're uh, dilating a blood vessel, we can see what it should look like after we're finished. We can see what... Uh, our, our results should be, or get an idea. It's kind of like an autopilot. You know, you can mm, kind of mm. uh, put things on your, what you're doing, uh, see what it should look like, and then go ahead and do your procedure. And if you're not perfect, you can maybe go back and try again to try and improve things, uh, because this is what the algorithm and the artificial intelligence suggests we should be able to achieve.
6: How long have you been a doctor now, Dr. Meta? Oh, golly. <laughs> 31 years. Because the reason I ask this is is I think about technology in our lives 30 years ago and what we took for granted then and how different it is now. So I can only imagine in healthcare and diagnostic imaging, I mean, it's it must be like looking at the stone age when you think about what you have at your disposal now.
7: Well, you know, uh, Jim, when I first went into medicine, I did family practice actually for uh, a couple of years and people laughed at me when I went into to radiology because there was just x-rays and, and barium. And people thought, what am I doing? But, you know, as you've noticed, just everything all around us from our computers, remember the Commodore 64 <laughs> yeah. to our phones today, you know, the, the the technology change has been phenomenal. Who would have imagined? And it's the same thing in medicine. Unfortunately, the th- problem in medicine, of course, is that um, it's costly and it's hard for any government anywhere in any jurisdiction to support the advances in care and the costs associated with it. In our Uh, case in Ontario, you know, communities support their hospitals with buying capital purchases, such as this angiography suite. And we've been fortunate to have such a strong and vibrant community in Markham and in Stollville and in Uxbridge, which are the hospitals uh, or the communities we mainly serve, uh, that they've been extremely supportive of of Oak Valley and and the, the advancement of care at these hospitals. It's just been fantastic to see.
6: But Dr. Med, I can only imagine the, the the stress and strain of being someone in healthcare at your position. And, you know, there's a burnout factor. I mean, it's just natural. But you sound so revitalized and invigorated by this. You almost sound like you're a young doctor when you're thinking about the what you can do with this new technology.
7: Well, it is. Uh, you know, it's been really, uh, I, I gave a, a little blurb, but it's been inspirational to see. It's been inspirational. Uh, it's been a very tough two years hmm. plus in healthcare very hard uh you know i'm not on the front lines as a physician i'm there but i'm not like the rest of our staff and our nurses and um, our technologists um are, you know they're on the front line um but i tell you the 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 enthusiasm the commitment of our entire organization and then to marry that with the support of our community throughout this pandemic to get to where we are today uh it's been an inspiring journey there are you know you could only think of the positives to help us get through these times and um, there's a lot of positives to have this type of equipment but the background work that uh, it took to get it in place to allow us to use it uh, it's been an entire team effort and by that i mean the entire york region and durham uh, along with all our staff it's been
6: phenomenal to see and in closing how many days a week would this uh, technology this equipment be in use diagnosing patients
7: Well, you know, it's going to be in use five days a week like it is at all hospitals. Mm -hmm. Of course, if there's emergencies that occur after hours on weekends, we'll have to deal with those. Uh, But all hospitals are sort of the way they work. It's, um, you know, uh, business hours, but emergencies do happen in medicine and you have to provide contingencies to treat those emergencies.
6: You're way better than anyone I see in Gray's Anatomy. That's why I want to talk to guys like you.
7: <laughs> I wish I looked like this before Grey's
6: Anatomy. <laughs> you and I both. Dr. Matish Mehta is the chief of diagnostic imaging at Markham Stoval Hospital in Oak Valley Health. And uh, thrilled to speaking to him about the new interventional radiology suite. It's going to be a game changer for healthcare for decades to come in the region. Dr. Meta, an absolute pleasure. Thank you for doing this. And thank you for all that you do for healthcare in the region. Thank you very much. This was wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: Coming up, remembering workers lost on the job.
0: Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back. The National Day of Mourning is next Thursday, April the 28th. This day means a great deal to Canadians, especially those who have lost friends, family, and co-workers due to workplace tragedies. I'm honored to be joined now by a couple of captains of the safety and construction industries whose wealth of knowledge and vast experience can help save lives. Kevin Brown is the CEO of Cobalt Safety. He is a safety consulting expert who advises companies nationwide on safety and prevention programs and procedures in the mining, oil, gas, manufacturing, and construction industries. Matt Stainton, CEO, SG Constructors and the Stainton Group, a construction executive with decades of hands-on, in-the-trenches experience that makes him one of Canada's most revered and respected builders gentlemen. So great to have your powerful voices with us here on the feed. Let's begin with you, Kevin Brown. The significance of the National Day of Mourning.
2: Significance of the National Day of Mourning uh, right across Canada is, is the to take a time and take a pause uh, to reflect on the workers that have lost their lives uh, while we're at work and to refocus our attention on you know, making sure workers are safe um, going forward so that we we don't have to keep having Uh, These fatalities in Ontario or or in Canada for our workers.
1: And Matt, the Association of Workers' Compensation Boards of Canada, so these stats are from 2019, but they're still relevant. 925 workplace fatalities. We sometimes refer to them as accidents, but accidents are preventable. What are your thoughts on that high number?
8: It's far too many. Zero is the number we should be working to. Any task that has to be done can be planned to be done safely, and if it can't, it shouldn't be done, or it should be focused and sequenced in another fashion that can be done safely. We have to get this down to zero.
1: I was really struck by the fact that 29 of the deaths out of the 925 were young workers between 15 and 24, Kevin.
2: Yeah, we see young workers coming into our workplace, and um, you know they are more susceptible when they first show up. and. You know, it's the, that's where training and safety and, training and mentorship and all that's very important to realize that, you know, our young workers need that guidance, they need that safety, and they're learning their jobs. So we can't just throw them into jobs, we have to help them and guide them through those jobs.
1: So, Matt, what's the problem today? What is putting workers at risk from coast to coast to coast?
8: I think there's a number of factors. One of the largest is the is the labor shortage in the construction industry. Uh, it, it puts us in a position where workers are going from province to province or territory to territory to find the best-paying jobs, and the safety training and the safety regulations are not consistent across the board.
1: Why is that? And Kevin, I know that this is part of your background. You worked for a while with the Ministry of Labor. You were investigating safety issues. Why is it so piecemeal? Why is there not some consistent rule of thumb when it comes to safety and procedures in Canada?
2: We see every province of, in Canada has its own uh, Occupational Health and Safety Act. It has its own approach to safety. It has its own compensation systems. So as the province is devising its health and safety uh, plans and thought processes, it, it, it tailors it to the province that they're in. But when you leave Ontario and you go to another province, you kind of have a different uh, set of laws or a different set of approaches on how safety is done. it's actually very hard for national companies here in Canada to, you know, to mitigate the changes from province to province within their actual safety programs. So, it's it's actually a detrimental thing for companies that do work on national scales to have such variations in safety here in in Canada.
1: And Matt, does that mean then that there are some provinces who are, are really below the standard, below the level of safety that should be there to protect workers?
8: don't think it's fair to say that there's somebody below the standard, but it's confusing for workers. When you're on a ladder, this, the hazard is the same regardless of which province you're in, and that's where we'd like to see more standardization of the rules and regulations and training across the province for similar activities.
1: What about new Canadians uh, for, for whom English isn't their first language, but they come with such amazing skills and and background. What can be done to protect them, and, and what puts their lives at risk, the fact that they are new to our country and new to the language?
2: I got that one, Matt. Um, And what we see is, uh, I actually talk about this a lot, which is confusion is actually a hazard. And it's one of those things that shows up when we're trying to change languages or we're trying to train workers who speak different languages, but we're approaching safety from an English standpoint. Uh, We have very multicultural here in Canada... And yet, a lot of our safety legislations, a lot of our safety trainings are all geared towards the English language. Uh, here at Cobalt Safety, we actually do a lot of training in Spanish whenever we can. And we're currently working on some Pajami and Hindi courses um, as we move forward because I think workers have a right to know languages they understand, not just a you know standardized language. So that can be a bit of a barrier for people. <laughs>
1: Matt, your perspective as CEO SG Constructors and a whole lot of time spent in the field and hands-on, what in your view is considered a safe job site environment and what is considered an unsafe job site environment?
8: A safe job site is one where the worker knows that at the end of the day, they're going to go home unharmed. Uh, it generally means that there are good safety practices and it has to come from the top of the company and, and there are many, many companies working on any individual job site, but the construction manager, or general contractor at the end of the day has to drive that process. The unsafe sites are the ones where people are complacent around safety or people don't put the same value on safety. At the end of the day, safety should be the first priority before you do any activity.
1: And, Kevin, we're not just talking construction here. We're talking about all kinds of sectors, mining, oil, gas, manufacturing, and, of course, as we mentioned, construction. What are the risks, and are they very much attuned to what the sector is? So there would be certain risks if you're, if you're in the mining field, or there would be different risks if you are dealing with gas or oil. Tell us about what those risks are.
2: All workplaces have uh, some sort of risk when it comes to work. Now, certain workplaces will have higher risk where basically it's more exposure to hazards. So, things like a fall hazard or an electrocution hazard, maybe a trench and collapse hazard, you know, you'd know, find those ones more in the construction sector. But when you go to the manufacturing sectors, uh, we also have variations in hazards there that they are running into. So, it's the predictability of hazards is the training of how to actually work safely with those hazards. Um, you know, we try to eliminate them as best we can but you know and from an honest standpoint there's hazards in construction and proper training how to safely work with those hazards that's what gets the job done.
1: And Matt as we edge closer to the National Day of Mourning is there a personal story that you would like to share how you've been affected by workplace tragedies?
8: I've seen uh more than I'd like to have seen hmm. over the years, uh, be it uh, injuries or uh, fatality. And it's just such an impact to the the workers' families, to the workers, uh, the co-workers and the injured person. And at the end of the day, it it just isn't necessary. And the the amount of time, effort and emotion that comes out of this far exceeds the amount of time and effort that it would take to make sure that it's done safely. So, you know, as as I have a son who's entering the industry, I look at that every day and I ensure and remind him that he's got to work safe every day.
1: And Kevin... Who do you send your message to when it comes to workplace safety and the critical shortage of labor and the fact that there is nothing sort of cohesive from coast to coast when it comes to regulations? Who do you talk to? Do you speak to the provinces? Do you talk to the federal government? Who do you talk to and who's listening?
2: It's a great question. I, I like to talk to industry leaders because industry leaders can also influence um, I'd love to talk to governments and provinces and get them talking to each other on some of this, uh, some of these situations that are there, so that there is a cohesiveness across Canada. It'd make it a lot easier for companies to work. It, it would remove some of the confusions when it comes to certain hazards. It would allow somebody who's been trained in Alberta to actually work in Ontario. Right now, if you are trained in fall protection in Alberta, when you come to Ontario, you have to be retrained here in Ontario. And that's a financial burden for companies and it can be barriers for workers as they, they look to you know, migrate where the jobs are. Uh, so I, I think it needs to be led right from the industry itself and also from the governments themselves. And, and I'll just look at it and say, you know, how do we improve Canada, not just each province on its own?
1: And how do we keep our workers safe and alive. Last question, and this goes to Matt. The National Day of Mourning is Thursday, April 28th. It's coming up very quickly. What will and should Canadians be thinking about in the moment of silence?
8: I think they want to think, I hope that they think about those that have lost their lives, the sacrifices that were made. And I hope that those that are working in the industry Look at that and and look at the impact that that's had on on the people around them and maybe give them pause to think about the task that they're about to undertake and make sure that they do it in a safe fashion because it generally does not take any more time to do it safely. It just means good planning and good planning quite often needs a more efficient job site. So it's it, a safe site is an efficient job site. Mm-hmm.
1: Matt Stainton, CEO, SG Constructors. Kevin Brown, CEO of Cobalt Safety. Thank you both so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you, Ed. Thank you, Ed. The Stand With Us campaign is a show of solidarity with the Jewish community. Tina Cortez now with the details.
9: According to Stats Canada, the Jewish community topped the list as the most targeted religious group. And to try to combat the trend of rising anti-Semitism is a unique and provocative billboard campaign. With the details is Jesse Primorano, Executive Director of Stand With Us Canada. Welcome to the feed, Jesse.
2: Thank you for having me.
9: Tell us about your group and the Stand With Us campaign.
2: Stand With Us is uh, an international organization dedicated to education about Israel and fighting misinformation uh, on anti-Semitism. While, of course, we work and educate with people of all ages, much of our work is done with students. Uh, Our goal is to empower them by way of leadership training, opportunities, and educational programs uh, on university, high school, and middle school campuses across the country. Uh, Our goal ultimately is to start a dialogue, not a fight. Uh, and that's what we're trying to do by way of these billboards in this campaign. Uh, we're really trying to bring awareness to these issues uh, and create an open dialogue between us and, and our partners.
9: And you spoke about being in the schools and talking with students. How is that going? Because it seems like a lot of what we're hearing is coming from our schools, coming from the students in our schools.
2: Absolutely. I mean, uh, this year alone in Toronto, we've seen an alarming rise uh, in the Toronto District School Board. And of course, issues with the boycott, divest and sanction movement on campuses across the country continue to to rear their heads. Uh, and so we're trying. Our our Emerson Fellowship Program, which uh, brings students from across the country together for leadership training uh, and uh, empowering opportunities to help educate their peers on their campuses about Israel, uh, it's growing year by year. Uh, and so we continue to see more fellows from more schools joining us. Uh, and we hope that as time goes by, you know we'll have uh, a strong network of ambassadors across the country that will help us to curtail these issues that you speak about that we've seen so much of in our school system uh and help to actually create educational opportunities for both jews and non-jews alike to understand you know who exactly Israel is uh the different advancements and opportunities that Israel has you know created and continues to create worldwide uh and essentially you know what our message is as a community to uh, to our to our friends
9: So Jesse, speaking of messages, can you share with us the messages on the billboards as part of this Stand With Us campaign?
2: Absolutely. So we've got two messages right now on billboards, three billboards around the city. And, you know, I'm going to tell you these messages and they may come across as a little bit staggering to you, but that is our goal, right? Our goal is to have people see these billboards and really take a step back and pause and think about what they just read. So the first one says, a billboard can't solve anti-Semitism but you are not a billboard. And so The idea is that people will right, see that and take a step back and realize that they have the opportunity themselves to make an impact and that this billboard is just the first step along the way. Uh, and the second says that we're just 60, 75 years removed from gas chambers in Europe, so no, a billboard drawing attention to anti-Semitism is not an overreaction. And, you know, given the context and the history we know about World War II and how recent it was and the fact that we're still seeing instances of anti-Semitism on a regular basis, uh, we think it's important for people to understand that um, it's not an overreaction and it's something that we need our community to support us on if we want to see meaningful strides be taken.
9: And why take this approach? Why be so provocative?
2: Well, ultimately, the objective is to raise awareness for the gravity of this issue. Uh, Statistics Canada says that the Canadian Jewish community topped the list as the most targeted religious group, uh, according to crimes reported by police in two thousand and twenty. Uh, moreover, uh B'nai B'rith Canada has reported a fifth consecutive year where anti-Semitic uh, incident incidents has um, have have grown. Um, and ultimately, our hope is that as a result of this awareness, we would see and feel increased support from our neighbors. We we know that our You know, Non-Jewish friends around Canada stand against bigotry and hatred in any of its forms, and we just need to know that they understand the gravity of this issue. Uh, And so one of our chief issues in this space is that anti-Semitic incidences, if they're not explicitly spelled out, it's often a challenge for us to even have them recognized for what they are, which is anti-Semitism. And so our goal through this campaign is to garner support from individuals, organizations, politicians. And like to ensure that, you know, when our community faces this bigotry, we can rely on them for support as well as, you know, a swift and expeditious response.
9: Will the campaign extend across the country?
2: Uh, Yes, we, I mean, not necessarily coast to coast, but we definitely plan to bring the billboards to other uh, prominent Canadian cities. Uh, And next on our list is, is to get to Ottawa.
9: And where can we spot these billboards right now?
2: So right now we have the, the billboards, as I mentioned, in three locations. Uh, the first would be on the DVP just north of Queen. So if you're driving south, you would see it on the, uh, the east side of the Don Valley Parkway. The other is at Spadina and College. And we have one in the east end of the city as well at Sherbourne and Richmond.
9: And one final question, if our listeners want more information, where can they find it?
2: That's a great question. They can find us at standwithus.com backslash Canada or on social media at standwithus. Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.
9: Thank you for joining us on the feed.
2: Thank you for having me.
9: If
1: you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.